This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Vouch excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Before we begin, I want to remind you that I have another show called Somewhere Sinister. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. More information is in the information below. Thanks. It was about 3.30 in the morning on February 16, 2002. A group of friends were up early, driving on Old Mill Road in Rutledge, Georgia, on their way to a chicken show in South Carolina. You know, a normal Saturday morning. One of the men saw a flickering glow from behind some trees and it was apparent that something was on fire. He knew the owner of the nearby property and told the driver to turn up ahead so he could check it out. He wanted to make sure his friend and his property were okay. When they got down the side road a ways, they stumbled onto a car that was completely engulfed in flames. One of the men called the sheriff's department and they waited for authorities to arrive. There was nothing they could do about the raging inferno at this point. They advised the sheriff's department to get the fire department out there quickly to ensure the fire didn't spread to the surrounding area. The Rutledge Fire Department arrived fairly quickly and began extinguishing the blaze. Deputy Sheriff John Williams arrived on the scene about 20 minutes after the call due to the remote location. By that time, most of the fire was out and he was immediately hit with the strong smell of burning plastic and fuel. The vehicle, which had started out as a red Pontiac Grand Am, was now white and it was sitting in a large coal-black circle. Nearby trees had also burned and were now bare, blackened sticks. Deputy Williams approached the vehicle and questioned the fire captain if they found any bodies. Inside, there was no interior. Everything had melted off the frame and it was just bare metal parts. The fire captain said there were no human bodies in the car, but it looked like someone had just slaughtered some beef or had a deer carcass in the trunk. As the trunk was opened, Deputy Williams could smell burnt flesh, and when he took a closer look at what was inside, he immediately knew that the captain was wrong. These were not animal remains. These are human beings, he announced. He could tell that one body was a male and thought the other body, which was smaller, was either a female or a child. It would be a difficult task to identify the remains, so he was happy to see the license plate still intact on the ground, something that might be able to point them in the right direction. The deputy used yellow crime scene tape to block off the area and then used his radio to call the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. His car fire had just turned into a double homicide. This is Monsters. Alan Bates was an honor student at Shades Valley High School and a popular one at that. He was voted class president three years in a row and played drums in a number of bands. He was also responsible for the school putting on a stage production after not having one for years. He fell in love with theater and spent most of his free time working in the drama department. He was raised in a happy home with very supportive parents, Philip and Joan Bates, and it led to Alan being an outgoing teen who did well in school and stayed out of trouble. 
Jessica Callis was a classmate who was more of a background character at the school. She was considered a pretty girl, but she wasn't part of the in crowd, not like Alan. She also didn't have the same stable home as Alan. Her parents had divorced when she was little, and she would later say that violence was the way to solve problems in her household. Punishments were usually in the form of slaps or beatings. Her parents would fight, and then her father, while he was still around, would run off and get drunk. Jessica saw Alan as her ticket into a better world, and soon she was able to attract his attention and they began seeing each other. It was the end of Alan's junior year, and the Bates family always spent the summer on the Gulf Coast. So Alan said goodbye to Jessica and promised to see her when he returned. At one point during their vacation, Alan went outside and saw Jessica and one of her friends sitting on the beach. Jessica had driven to the town that Alan was in, but didn't know exactly where he was staying, so she drove around until she found his family's van. Then she sat on the beach until he came outside the next morning. It was an eight-hour round trip from Birmingham just so she could see him for a few hours. Alan thought it was sweet, while others might have thought it was a little obsessive. When the next school year started, Alan and Jessica were officially together, and it wasn't long before Jessica was telling Alan that he was no longer allowed to speak to his best friend, who just happened to be a female, despite them knowing each other since infancy. Both of them said they were more like cousins, and there was no sexual attraction. Only a few months into their relationship, Jessica got pregnant, and Alan, being the good person that he was, decided that he would marry her and take care of his family. Other people believed that Jessica had trapped Alan with a pregnancy, some questioning if the child was even his. Alan felt like abortion was never an option for Jessica, but what he didn't know was that this was not Jessica's first pregnancy. A friend would later say that Jessica had had at least five abortions previously, and she questioned her friend about why she suddenly decided to keep this baby. Alan broke the news to his parents that Jessica was pregnant and that he planned to marry her. They were proud of their son for taking responsibility and supported his decision. He was not planning to quit school, though. He still wanted to complete high school and then go to college to become a theater stage director. They planned for Jessica to quit school and move into the Bates house while Alan completed school. After moving into the house, Jessica began getting to know the family through stories and photo albums. The Bates were a normal, functional family, and Jessica always countered their stories with horror stories from her own past. Nobody knows just how accurate the stories were, and it was years later that members of the Bates family would start to question them. At the time, Alan saw a woman that he could give a better life to. It made him love her even more. Alan and Jessica got married on January 26, 1990, and their first daughter was born on March 20th. After that, they moved in with Jessica's mother and stepfather. Their house was closer to the high school and they thought it would be more convenient, but after a fight between Jessica and her mother, Diane, the couple were back at the Bates residence. From that point on, Jessica began punishing her mother by not allowing her to visit the baby. The Bates family would later say that the situation in their house became uncomfortable. Alan graduated high school in 1990 and enrolled in a theater program at the University of Montevallo. The university was about 35 miles or 55 kilometers south of Birmingham. Alan's father, Philip, purchased an old fixer-upper outside of Montevallo for his son and his family to live in while Alan was in school. Alan would spend his time outside of school working odd jobs to help support his family. Jessica seemed happy to have Alan away from his family and all to herself though he still played drums in the gospel choir and she constantly complained about groupies trying to get his attention. Then she accused him of meeting girls at school and confronted him about cheating. Her insecurity became a massive burden on their relationship. She showed up at the school with the baby while Alan was in the middle of a production and began screaming at him about how she knew he was sleeping with other students. He had to stop the production and convince her to go home. Jessica seemed to calm down a bit by 1992, Their second daughter was born on November 16th, and it seemed to push her paranoia back into overdrive. Alan was now working full-time while also attending school, but Jessica was sure that he was finding the time to cheat on her somewhere. She also began claiming to have a variety of ailments which kept her in constant need of Alan's assistance. This kept him from being able to make other plans and constantly at her side. Alan would even sometimes sleep on a cot backstage at the school theater just to have some peace from Jessica's constant needy behavior. 
If any of Jessica's stories of childhood violence were true, it would be her stories that her biological father, George Callis, was an abusive man. He beat his wife and children, and Diane said she feared that he would kill them, so she filed for divorce. In anger, George threw Diane and their three children out of the house with nothing, no clothes, no place to stay, no food, and no money. It was a short time where the children were out of school struggling to eat, but Diane was able to get George kicked out of the house so she and the children could move back in. After that, George moved to Tennessee where he met a woman named Olivia and the two got married, because George seemed like an obvious catch. Well, the honeymoon didn't last because George eventually started treating Olivia just like he treated all women, by beating them, if that wasn't obvious. On November 11, 1992, just five days before Jessica would give birth to her second child, George called the Chattanooga Police Department and requested an ambulance. When he was asked what the problem was, he calmly explained, quote, I've been beating my wife and she stopped breathing. Oh, is that all? By the time EMTs arrived on the scene, George had changed his clothes and cleaned up the crime scene. Olivia was pronounced dead at the scene. Her face was so badly disfigured that she was unrecognizable. George was taken into custody and sentenced to life in prison. Jessica was notified about her father's crime, but he would have been out of her life for many years. It's unknown if his actions affected her future behavior or not. It would be yet another example of using violence as an answer to problems, something that she grew up with. At the end of 1993, Jessica got her GED and decided that she was also going to go to college. Soon, Alan was juggling two jobs, the kids and classwork, in order to provide Jessica time to return to school. That consisted of a single history class. In February of 1994, Jessica told Alan that she wanted to take a trip to Washington, D.C. One reason was to do research for a class project, and the other was to give them both some time apart. Alan agreed, and soon Jessica was off to the country's capital. After she left, Alan was looking through some drawers for something and realized that some of Jessica's belongings were missing, which made him think that she was not alone on her trip. He never said exactly what was missing, but it seemed as though they were items that one would only use in a sexual situation. He also became aware that a male student of her history class was also in Washington, D.C. at the same time. Alan called her at the hotel and questioned her about her situation. Jessica only denied it and became angry about the accusations. Friends of Jessica would later say that she told them that she was going to Washington, D.C. to do research and to have an abortion. She told her friends that none of the doctors in Birmingham would touch her for some reason. Alan knew the storm that was coming and had the forethought to take his daughters to his parents' house. When Jessica got home in the middle of the night, the fight was just as Alan expected and he told his wife that it was over. He was done with the marriage and that he was leaving. When she heard that, she went to the kitchen and grabbed a butcher knife. She came at Alan as he walked out the door and swung at him, but the knife hit the door. Alan was shocked by the attack, but he didn't call the police. He figured it was over, he was leaving, and she would eventually cool down. That would be it. He didn't realize that it was the first sign of just what Jessica would do to get her way. When Alan, his father, and his younger brother Kevin went to the house to collect Alan's belongings, they found that the house had been ransacked. Everything had been torn apart, and anything that belonged to Alan had been destroyed. Pictures were torn up, personal items had been smashed. Alan salvaged what he could and moved on, but that behavior made Jessica even more upset. Alan refused to engage with her. She was looking for a fight, something she could use against Alan but he never gave her any ammunition. Her next tactic was to use the children against him. She began telling the girls lies about their father and refusing to let him see them. When the divorce was finalized, Jessica got custody of the kids and Alan had visitation. He also insisted that she stay in the house and he made monthly payments to her. Despite what she would imply later in court, records show that he never missed a payment, a direct contradiction to what she told her friends. As far as they knew from him, Alan never paid his child support and didn't want to see the kids. Alan had actually made child support payments before he was ever ordered to in court. He also offered her the house, but she chose to move in with her mother and stepfather, likely for the free daycare. Her manipulation of the girls increased. She would send the girls outside to sit on the porch and wait for their father to pick them up, 
knowing that Alan wasn't scheduled to be there. Then, when he never arrived, she could blame their disappointment on him, knowing full well that he was never intended to arrive. People who knew her were uncomfortable with the way she spoke about Alan in front of her kids. At the same time, Alan was moving forward with his life. He had graduated from the University of Montevallo and got a job as the stage manager of the Alabama Theater in downtown Birmingham. He had made his dream a reality and was enjoying his new life. While Alan was working at the theater, the executive director began the process of having the building restored. Tara Clue had gotten her degree in art history and was part of the team who were going to restore the historic theater. She grew up in North Carolina and currently lived near Washington, D.C., and was sent to Birmingham to document the theater for the Library of Congress. Her focus was on her career and not her love life, but when you find the right person, it's pretty hard to stop yourself from falling in love. This is what happened when Alan and Tara met at the Alabama Theater. It made sense. They both loved art and theater. They were both reserved and humble. They were matching puzzle pieces where Alan and Jessica had been a square peg in a round hole. Not long after they began dating, Tara quit her job so she could remain in Birmingham. When her company was finished at the theater, they would be moving to a different town to start documenting another historical building. Tara didn't want to leave Alan, so she stayed there. The couple continued their relationship and it was a new experience for Alan. When there was a problem, they talked it out. If Alan was with another woman, Tara assumed that Alan was just being friendly, not that he was cheating on her. It was a mature, healthy relationship. It made Alan very happy, which made Jessica miserable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. To counter her unhappiness about Alan's, well, happiness, Jessica went out and found herself a new relationship. She started seeing a man who worked at a comic book and gaming store, which her friends were confused about at first. But it was eventually revealed that Jessica was under the impression that the man was due to inherit some money. His name's not available, so I'm going to call him Scott. Once she learned that Scott was due an inheritance, she was all over him. It wasn't long before she moved into his house and left her daughters with her mother. This went on for months. Alan had to start calling around to find out where Jessica and his daughters were, and soon, one of Jessica's friends found her. She told Jessica to go back home and take care of her kids, which she did. But by then, she had already been pregnant once and had an abortion, and she was pregnant again. At the beginning of 1997, Jessica gave birth to Scott's child and immediately filed for child support. She was granted $800 a month in child support from Scott, which was far more than he could pay. Jessica reported him for non-payment, and Scott was put in jail. He was able to provide income documentation to the judge, and his child support was dropped to $463 a month, which he was able to afford. That wasn't all, though. Scott was also to negotiate visitation rights, but Jessica never honored them. Scott would later say that he never confronted her about it because he was afraid for his safety after hearing that she had put Alan in the hospital, which she had. One day, Jessica had brought their daughters to Alan's house, and while there, she instigated a fight. She then hit him and pushed him down a flight of stairs where he broke his arm. Then she went outside, and by the time the cops showed up, she had scratches on her arm, insisting that Alan had scratched her, but they didn't look like scratches from fingernails. The officers realized that Jessica had rubbed her skin on some bricks to make herself look like she had been scratched. Alan went to the hospital and he pressed charges against Jessica. It seemed that the charges eventually got dropped, but the incident did get her fired from her job. We'll be right back. As a This Is Monsters listener, you know the world can sometimes be a scary place. But no matter what happens out there, your home should be the safest place there is for you and your family. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is advanced whole home security that puts you, your home, and your family's safety first. Here's why I love it. I can check on my home anytime I'm away, right from my cell phone. 
If my kids are home alone, I can check on them as well. I get an alert anytime one of the devices is triggered, and with the indoor and outdoor cameras, I can see exactly what happened and what set off the device. It was easy to set up. In less than 30 minutes, I installed the devices, paired them to the home base, and was ready to go. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com forward slash thisismonsters. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com forward slash thisismonsters. Near the end of 1998, Jessica had begun working as a secretary for the Birmingham Police Department. At the beginning of 1999, after her attack on Allen, she was let go from the department. Her termination letter cited her continual absences from work as well as her attack on Allen. By that time, she had already met and began dating a police officer named Jeff McCord. Before Jessica was able to get her hooks into Jeff and start living off of him, she needed to make some extra money since she was now jobless. By this time, Jessica had left her parents' house and moved back into the house on Montevallo, and she sent an invoice to Allen that listed some plumbing repairs in the amount of $1,700. She requested that Allen pay half the bill since it was still technically his house. Jessica, being known as a liar at this point, wasn't going to get Allen's money that easily. He sent the bill to his lawyer, who did some digging and found that the company on the invoice didn't exist. The invoice had no dates and no address or phone number for the supposed company that completed the repairs. The lawyer sent Jessica a letter stating as much and telling her that she needed to provide an original invoice with contact info for the company. She never responded. In June of 1999, Jessica continued to dodge Alan and hide the kids when it was his scheduled visitation. Alan finally told his lawyer to take it to court and file a grievance. At this point, Alan had no intention of seeking full custody of his daughters. He simply wanted to be able to see his children on his scheduled visitation times. Jessica would go for months, taking the girls to someone else's house on his visitation days so nobody would be home when he arrived. She just flat out refused to let him see his daughters and she began forbidding them to talk to him. Even when he showed up for their dance recital, they weren't allowed to talk to him. When Alan and Tara planned to get married at the end of June, Jessica knew that Alan wouldn't have the ceremony without his daughters present, so she hid the girl starting a week prior to the wedding, causing Alan and Tara to postpone the ceremony. Alan hoped to get through the court battle with Jessica and then marry Tara, but it wasn't going to be that simple. Jessica continued to keep the girls from visitation. She claimed one time that her grandmother had died and that they had gone out of town to go to her memorial, but Alan's lawyer found her grandmother was alive and well. She claimed to be sick and even in the hospital on one occasion. Jessica forced Alan's hand and he had no choice but to file a contempt petition. Things got more complicated at the beginning of 2000 when Alan accepted a job that would require him to travel with a theater group. He should have been able to return to Birmingham and see his children, but Jessica would go for months at a time keeping them from him. Then he was offered a job in Maryland and took it. Tara wanted to go back to school in Baltimore, so it worked out for both of them. First, they had to get the custody situation handled. When their court case came on April 4th, 2000, Jessica didn't even show up. Her lawyer asked for a continuance but was denied, so she informed the judge that she was quitting as Jessica's lawyer, and the judge accepted. Now Alan and his lawyer were able to present their case to the judge with zero opposition. Not surprisingly, Jessica was found in contempt of court and sentenced to 10 days in jail. The sentence would be suspended and there would be a hearing in October to determine if Jessica had been following the custody guideline. If not, off to jail she'd go. The original custody agreement said that Alan was entitled to have the kids for up to 8 weeks in the summer with 30 days notice. After the judgment against her, Alan sent Jessica a letter requesting the girls from June 19th to August 13th. To his surprise, Jessica agreed. This was perfect because Alan and Tara had rescheduled their wedding for June 24th, and now his daughters would definitely be there. When Alan showed up at the house to pick up the girls, Jessica introduced him to Jeff and informed him that they had just gotten married. Though surprised, Alan was actually a little relieved that Jeff was a cop. 
It made him feel like the girls were a little safer. He shook the man's hand and congratulated him before loading the girls into his car and heading to a full month of visitation with his daughters. Alan and Tara got married at the Alabama Theater, and the girls visited their grandparents for a few days while the newlyweds had a short honeymoon. After that, Alan and Tara took the girls to their new home in Maryland and spent the summer together. Alan thought that this could be the beginning of a new life. Jessica had finally come to her senses and was going to follow the custody guidelines. Unfortunately, he was completely wrong. Before their marriage, Jessica found out that Jeff had some money that was being controlled by his mother. She convinced him to go talk to her and ask for some money for a down payment on a house. He didn't have regular communication with his family, so when he showed up to talk to his mother, his family knew something was up. She agreed to give him money, though not as much as Jessica was hoping for, but enough for a down payment. His family said that after he left that day, he went right back to avoiding communication with them. When the girls got back from Maryland, Jessica and Jeff moved into a new home and they went right back to keeping Alan's daughters from him. Now that Alan lived in Maryland, it would have required very little work on her part to stay in compliance. Most of the time, all she had to do was let Alan talk on the phone with his daughters for 15 minutes once a week. But she just couldn't do it. By October, she couldn't even be bothered to show up to court. Again. So the judge ordered her to jail. When Jessica found out, she exploded, yelling about how Alan had the nerve to demand she be put in jail. He did no such thing. He demanded he be able to see his children. The judge demanded that she be put in jail for breaking the law. In Jessica's eyes, this was all Alan's fault. I mean, if he had simply just let her deny his rights to see his children, none of this would have happened. Am I right? Jessica's plan at this point was to just ignore everything. She was due to serve jail time, and she had also been served with multiple custody violations at this point. Alan didn't even know where Jessica, Jeff, and his children were living. The girls weren't enrolled in school. She was literally in hiding with them, with her husband, who was a cop. Eventually, she even had Jeff remove the mailbox from her property so they wouldn't receive legal paperwork in the mail. Alan waited and waited and waited to face Jessica in court. The dates got postponed to May, then July, then September. In September, Jessica was due to have Jeff's baby, so the date was postponed again. Jessica gave birth to her fourth child on September 28, 2001. By December, Jessica had kept Alan's daughters away from him for over a year. They hadn't even spoken on the phone. On December 18, 2001, Jefferson County Sheriff's deputies arrived at Jessica and Jeff's house and presented a warrant for her arrest. Jeff tried to keep them from going inside the house, claiming they didn't have a search warrant to search the property for her, but they didn't buy his shit. One of the deputies asked matter-of-factly, is she here? And Jeff caved, inviting them inside. Inside, Jessica tried to claim that she was her sister, but the deputy didn't buy that either. One of them called dispatch to provide them with a picture of Jessica, but before they could, she confessed about her real identity. Of course, once in the sheriff's cruiser, she told the deputy that someone was going to pay for what they were doing to her. Right, right, you're gonna sue for getting arrested after breaking the law. Take a number, lady. Once she was released from jail... Despite Alan signing off on allowing her out for two days over Christmas, she put her focus all on him. For whatever reason, the idea of her daughters having occasional visitations with their father was something that Jessica just couldn't have. It was control that she just had to have over him, and despite her own actions causing her more and more chances of losing custody of her children, she just couldn't stop herself. Eventually, Alan had had enough and filed for full custody of his daughters. Alan had been granted temporary custody of the girls while Jessica was in jail, but at a court hearing on January 14, 2002, the judge allowed them to be returned to Jessica until the custody case was settled. During this hearing, though, the subject of the children's schooling came up and Jessica claimed that she had been homeschooling them and that she was licensed to do so and was considered a part of the faculty at the Hope Christian School. Two days after the hearing, her lawyer learned that that was all a lie. Nothing she said was true. He was required to report it to the court, which he did. Because of her behavior, her own lawyer agreed to move forward with the custody case quickly. 
Depositions were set to happen on February 15, 2002. Allen was set to fly down from Maryland. Jessica had spent the last few years grooming Jeff to accept her final plan. As far as Jeff knew, Allen was an abusive maniac and they couldn't allow him to have custody of the girls and allow him to abuse them further. She told Jeff stories about how Allen had broken both of her wrists and cracked her sternum. That's exactly what they were, though. Stories. Allen had never laid a hand on Jessica and he certainly never abused his daughters. She got into Jeff's head and convinced him that he needed to help protect her and her daughters. The only way that they would be truly safe from Alan was if he was dead. On February 15, 2002, Alan flew to Birmingham and went straight to the lawyer's office for his deposition. He had requested ahead of time that after he was finished, he would pick up the girls at 6 p.m. and return them to Jessica on Sunday night. Her goal was to get Alan to her house, but when she arrived for the deposition, she was surprised to see Tara with him. She thought Alan was coming alone, so now they were going to have to adjust their plan. After the depositions, Jessica stayed in her lawyer's office and started bragging about how she had lied about where the girls had been, so Alan couldn't see them. Her lawyer was not happy. She seemed to have the impression that a lawyer had to agree with you all the time, but she quickly found out that that was not the case. Her lawyer showed his disgust over what she and her family had done and ended the meeting. Jessica was home at about 4.30. Jeff was scheduled to work that night, but he switched shifts with someone else. It seems like a cop would know that that would throw suspicion on him, but Jeff was described by people as being a little dim. They wanted to commit the murder in the den in the back of the house, so they put a note on the front door that read, We're having some problems. Please come around to the back door. Jeff had a 44 caliber Beretta that he had purchased from another officer years earlier. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission... Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. At 6 p.m., Alan and Tara pulled up to the McCord house in a rented red Pontiac Grand Am. As Alan was about to park in the street, Jessica ran outside and waved for them to park in the driveway. She led them around to the back of the house and into the den. Then she told them to have a seat on the couch, because the girls had put together a play they wanted to perform. The girls weren't even there. All of the kids were at Jessica's mother's house. Jessica knew exactly what to say to disarm Alan, and he quickly sat down on the couch with Tara at his side. Jessica left the den for a minute and then came back, stalling. Alan was getting impatient, and after a minute, Jeff stood up, pulled the gun from the back of his waistband, and shot Tara. As Alan started standing up, Jeff shot him twice. Alan continued struggling to stand, so Jeff shot him one more time. Then he stepped closer to Tara and fired two more shots into her. The couple was dead and Jessica just sat on a step and watched it happen. Now that her ex-husband and his wife were dead, Jessica went outside and backed the rental car up to the side of the house. They wrapped the bodies in blankets and some old drapes and carried them out to the trunk of the car. Jeff picked up the shell casings. Having counted six shots, he made sure to find six casings. Jessica went to the kitchen and called Alan's cell phone. Then she left a voicemail message asking where they were. This would make their story of the couple never arriving seem more plausible. She grabbed some glass cleaner and some paper towels so they could wipe the car down before they set it on fire. Jeff drove the rental car while Jessica followed in their minivan. They stopped at a payphone in town where Jessica called her parents and asked if they could keep the kids for the rest of the night. She said that Alan had flaked and that she and Jeff wanted to go to the movies. 
After that, they went to the local movie theater and purchased tickets for an upcoming showing of Lord of the Rings. Then they drove toward Georgia, and just before the border, they stopped at a subway to eat, because murder makes you hungry. Before they left, they cut up Alan and Tara's credit cards for some reason. I'm not sure why they thought that was necessary. Then they headed toward Atlanta. Jeff had dismantled the gun, and along the way, he threw pieces of it out randomly along the highway. Outside of Atlanta, they stopped and purchased a gas can and a gallon of gas. Then they drove to a rest stop where they stopped and wiped down the rental car. Why they stopped and did this before they were done driving the car is also unknown. It just seems they're not very good criminals. The rest stop had an information center where Jeff bought lighter fluid and a lighter. Eventually they made it to Rutledge and pulled over into a secluded area off Old Mill Road. Jeff dumped the gas all over the car and then opened the trunk and poured the rest over Alan and Tara's bodies. Jessica handed him a few paper towels, which he lit on fire and tossed into the open window, but nothing happened. Jessica was getting impatient, so she grabbed a paper towel and lit it on fire, tossing it into the car herself. The Grand Am burst into flames. They both ran to their van and took off. Jessica told Jeff he had done something great for the girls. Jeff would say later that he felt proud about what he had done. They stopped at a gas station in Atlanta where they wiped down the gas can and left it on a sidewalk. On their way back to Birmingham, Jeff tossed the lighter out the window. Before returning home, they stopped at the Home Depot hardware store. They got there a few minutes before they opened and they purchased a razor knife, a carpet cutting tool, and some black plastic. Back at their house, the amount of cleanup was overwhelming. There was blood soaked into the carpet and bullet holes in the couch and the wall. They didn't have enough time to pull a couch and carpeting out of their house without people noticing. Jessica suggested setting that part of the house on fire to burn up the evidence, not thinking it would be suspicious that her ex-husband, who she was having a custody battle with, died in a car fire the same night that her house caught on fire. Jeff was able to talk her out of the idea, believing he could come up with another plan. Joan and Philip Bates began worrying when Alan, Tara, and the girls didn't show up by 10 o'clock that night. It was possible that something had happened and they had to stop, but why wouldn't they call? Joan had dinner waiting. Alan knew that and wouldn't just let his mother sit and wonder where he was. She tried his cell phone, but there was no answer. She tried Tara's phone, but there was also no response. Philip called Jessica's house, but there was no answer there either. They called the police in Birmingham and asked if there were any reports of accidents, but nothing matched. They were in for a long night of worrying where Alan and his family were. The car was discovered not long after it was set on fire. It had been long enough to completely destroy the car, but not long enough to spread to the surrounding area. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation Forensics Unit searched the car and the surrounding area. They found a blanket underneath the bodies that hadn't completely burned. They also found a partially burned piece of paper towel that had a distinctive pattern on it, an image of a little boy and a little girl. They found a 44 caliber shell casing on the ground about 10 to 15 feet from the rear of the car. They found a mushroomed projectile inside the trunk and a cigarette butt nearby. The coroner arrived and picked up the bodies, which would be taken to the GBI crime lab for autopsy. After running the plates, they tracked the car to the rental company and got Alan's name. They backtracked his movements and found that he left the deposition at 3.30 the day before and hadn't been seen since. Investigators learned that Alan and Tara had planned to pick up his daughters from Jessica's house at 6 p.m. after the deposition. They went to the police station and questioned Jeff first. Jeff was short with the investigators and didn't want to talk to them, but he eventually answered a few questions about where the kids had been and if Alan and Tara had showed up to pick up the girls. He answered with yes or no and didn't elaborate if he didn't need to. The investigator asked Jeff to go through what they did that night. He explained that Alan and Tara never showed up, so they dropped the kids off at Jessica's mom's house and went to the movies. He admitted that, after they watched The Lord of the Rings, they snuck into a different theater and watched Black Hawk Down. Then he reached into his wallet and produced two pristine ticket stubs, which seemed very convenient for him to have on him the next day at work. After the movies, he said they drove around a bit and then went to a strip club. 
Jeff also explained that they had gone to the Home Depot first thing in the morning to pick up supplies for some home improvement projects that Jessica's stepfather was going to start that day. When investigators checked the Home Depot transaction, they saw that they only bought a couple of knives and some plastic. They claimed that they were redoing some flooring, replastering some walls, and adding wallpaper, but they only bought two knives and some plastic? It seemed odd. The investigators learned that Jessica was at her mother's house, and when they arrived, Jessica came outside. When she was asked if they could go inside and talk, Jessica said no. She was also immediately defensive and uncooperative. If you're going to kill someone and try to cover it up, especially someone you know will make you a suspect, don't be uncooperative. Why go through all the effort of disposing of the bodies and cleaning up the scene to then be unwilling to talk to the authorities? If you were truly innocent, you'd be surprised and answer their questions. Oh my god, they're missing? They never showed up last night. I didn't know what was going on. Don't go, no, what do you want? I don't want to talk to you. That's just going to make the authorities look into you more. Jessica basically told them coldly, they never showed up. During the course of her interview, some of her answers didn't match Jeff's. Jeff said that Alan was supposed to pick the girls up from their house, and when he didn't show up, they took them over to Diane's house at 645. Jessica said they brought the girls to Diane's house at 5.30. Alan was supposed to pick them up from there because he wasn't allowed at her house. She was adamant that Alan had never been to her house. When they asked if they could search her and Jeff's house, she said absolutely not. By the time the interview with Jessica was over, dental records had positively identified the bodies from the fire as Alan and Tara. During the autopsy, the medical examiner found four bullet wounds in Tara and determined that some of the wounds would have been inflicted while she was in a sitting position. The medical examiner also found four bullet wounds in Alan and found one of the bullets still in his wrist. It had entered his wrist, probably because Alan had his hand up in a defensive position, then the bullet hit his watch and stopped. The bullet was a .44 caliber and matched the projectile found in the trunk of the rental car. It seems that Jeff had miscounted when he counted six shots that night, meaning there could be some evidence still left in their house. As soon as it was revealed that the McCord house was the last place that Alan and Tara were supposed to be before they disappeared, police kept the place under surveillance. Jessica's stepfather, Albert, had been seen putting a couch into his van and then driving around with it. Investigators recovered the couch from a dumpster and took it as evidence. The backing of the couch had been cut out and all the cushions were gone. There were still blood stains on one of the arms, though. When Albert was questioned about the couch, he said that Jessica had told him to find somewhere to dump it. It was easy to get a search warrant for the McCord house after that. Inside their house, the investigators focused their search on the den. One of the girls had mentioned to a detective that everything was different in the den when they came back from their grandparents' house. They noticed that the wallpaper was brand new and looked to have been installed quickly. An investigator looked in the garage and found a hole in the drywall on the other side of the wall from the den. When he searched around with his flashlight, he found a spent bullet that would later be matched to the other two bullets from the scene and from inside Alan's wrist. On the other side of the wall, they peeled back the wallpaper and found the bullet hole from inside the den. They wallpapered over it but didn't bother to patch the hole first. They found blood on a coffee table and they found multiple paper towels in the house that had the exact same unique print as the one found inside the burnt car. It wasn't long before the ballistics expert matched the bullet found in the McCord garage to the bullets from the scene. They got a warrant for the arrest of Jeff and Jessica McCord. Jessica and Jeff had been hiding out at a friend's house, but one of their family members was secretly keeping the authorities apprised of their location. On February 21, 2002, police arrested the McCords at a friend's house near Birmingham. They were both charged with capital murder. Of course, it was revealed after the charges were filed that Jessica was pregnant yet again. Jessica used this fact as a reason why she should be released on bond, but it was a capital murder case with strong evidence. The request for bond was quickly denied. This set off months of Jessica writing long letters to the judge complaining about the conditions of the jail and how she needed to be out on bond to give birth to her baby. She accused people of being against her. Of course, this was all because other people were out to get her. She even wrote a letter after she gave birth to her fifth baby, angry that the baby was taken away and they wouldn't be able to bond. 
You murdered two people and torched their bodies. You're never going to see that baby again. Jessica and Jeff were tried separately, and Jessica's trial was first. The prosecutor laid out the timeline, the inconsistent stories, the bullets, the blood, and the motive. The very clear motive. Despite that, the defense lawyer's argument was that there was no motive. This didn't seem to do much besides confuse the jury. How on earth could this lawyer say there was no motive? Allen's lawyer for his custody battle testified and absolutely blew that statement out of the water. It was clearly documented to what extent Jessica was willing to go in order to keep Allen's daughters away from him. It was very easy for the jury to believe murder was on Jessica's menu. Not only did one of Jessica's friends testify against her about comments she made that Jeff would kill Alan, her lawyer from the custody battle testified against her about her admitted lies to keep Alan from getting custody of his daughters. It wasn't looking good for Jessica, so she went all in and did what so many guilty narcissists do. She took the stand. She believed that she could convince the jury she was innocent, but she couldn't. She seemed smug and claimed that Alan refused to maintain a regular visitation schedule, which was directly contradicted in court records of his battle to see his children. The fact that she didn't even show up to custody hearings spoke pretty loudly. When she was asked why she claimed to be her sister when she was arrested on contempt charges, she claimed that she was just joking and the deputy knew that except that he had called in and requested a picture of her, which was documented in police records. The worst part was she used any chance she got to personally insult Alan, a person who had been murdered and set on fire. It wasn't a good look. After the prosecutor was finished poking holes in all of her stories, Jessica didn't have a chance. On February 15, 2003, exactly one year after the murders, Jessica McCord was found guilty of capital murder. Jessica's lawyer asked the judge if his client could have a moment with her family before being taken to jail, and without hesitation, the judge said no. She got the same amount of time with her family as she gave to Alan and Tara. None. Since the case was a death penalty case... A few days later, there was a death penalty trial, and the jury came back 7-5 to five in favor of life without parole. Most states, and in federal cases, the jury has to be unanimous for the death penalty, with the exception of one state, Alabama. But even then, they didn't have a majority vote for the death penalty, so the judge sentenced Jessica McCord to life without the possibility of parole. She will never be released from prison. After Jessica's guilty verdict, Jeff realized that his chances of an acquittal were pretty slim. He talked to his lawyer and accepted a deal to plead guilty in exchange for two consecutive life sentences. His agreement said that he had to explain exactly what happened to Alan and Tara. During his statement, he was completely matter-of-fact and showed zero remorse for his actions. He would actually say in a later interview that he didn't regret what he did. He was a cold, heartless monster who believed two lives were less important than his wife's ego. After the trial was over, the friend that was helping the McCords hide while they were being investigated, Michael Upton, and Jessica's mother were both tried and convicted of perjury. Michael was sentenced to a year of work release and five years probation, and Diane was sentenced to a year of work release and seven years probation. In one final display of her true character, when Jessica got onto the bus that would take her to prison, she saw Jeff, who was sitting amongst other inmates, locked in the men's section. She looked at the inmates around him and said, quote, Hey guys, that's my husband. He's a cop. Because Jeff took a deal and came clean, Jessica wanted retaliation against him, something that could have easily gotten him killed. If anybody had second thoughts about whether or not Jessica was guilty of the murders of Alan and Tara, this proved that she was truly an evil monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. 
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operates the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. All this month, stream the funniest films for free on Pluto TV. Watch comedy classics like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and Mean Girls. Or drop in for a Tyler Perry marathon with a Medea family funeral and Medea's witness protection. Pluto TV also has hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows like Get Shorty, Be Cool, Key and Peel, Comedy and Color, and more. And no contracts, no subscriptions, no fees, no joke. So download the Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start laughing today. Pluto TV, drop in, watch free. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Stores influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Bulmers from just €18.72. Half-price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of €50 or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.